So our epiphany readings this morning in Genesis and 1 Corinthians and Luke remind us that the goal of epiphany is not merely to rehearse these ancient revelations of God, but these revelations that we read about during the season of epiphany would give us the desire and the imagination to learn to consistently recognize God's presence in our own lives. Some of you may know the author David Benner. In one of his little books, he wrote that revelation is not simply information about something that happened at some distant point in time. But David says, God has no more stopped being revelation than he has stopped being love. And so what Benner's trying to do is he's trying to move us from knowledge about Jesus to devotion, to surrender to the divine presence, to surrender to the divine will, and to learn to unmask the divine in the circumstances of our lives, and to learn to name the presence of God in our lives. And of course, this is what Joseph did in our reading in Genesis 45. But I think a bit of kind of careful pastoral care is needed here when we think about this Joseph story. We don't want to think from this story that every bad thing that happens in someone's life is directed from God. That would be a very dangerous thing to say in a pediatric cancer ward. That'd be a very hard thing to say at a domestic violent shelter or just to somebody who's going through a really hard patch in their life. So this is this is not a this story is not meant to be a, a systematic statement that says again that every bad thing uh, comes from God, but it's just as wrong in my opinion. Again, thinking of this pastorally, it's just as wrong to make God into an absentee landlord who has nothing to do with anything. What we want to come to is the place where we can name the presence of God even in hardship and thereby become to find some sort of honest meaning in it. Julian Julian of Norwich is maybe a a classic example of this. You know, her living in the midst of the Black Plague that killed, people estimate, 75 million people. And and you know the, the famous words where she's wrestling with this before God, and she says that she hears God say to her, I can make all things well. I shall make all things well, and I will make all things well. And you will see yourself that every kind of thing will be made well. And here, I think we just need to say to each other, we are in the realm of truthful mystery. We just can't always know what's underneath something. Is it human error? Is it human sin? Is there some divine providence behind it? We just can't always know. And I, just speaking for myself, it often just means, it just means have some humility. Have some grace towards each other. And if we're gonna walk into those really deep, mysterious waters of what undergirds somebody who gets in a car accident, or goes to the doctor and gets a terrible diagnosis, or even wins the lottery. When we're wondering about how God is in this, it's the right thing to wonder, 
but we're on grounds of truthful mystery, I just think call for loving humility towards one another. So in this story of Joseph, this we see a, a bit of epiphany revelation in that Joseph did come to see the presence and purposes of God at work in his pain and in his confusion. And this is what prompts him to say to his brothers, hey, don't feel badly you know, about what happened here. Don't blame yourself for selling me. God was behind it. He was putting me in place to rule over Pharaoh's things so that I could save lives. The, the Hebrew actually says so that life could happen. Like this, this was an effort for God who makes life to make life happen through what was happening to me. And in our reading in 1 Corinthians, of course, we're, we're picking up a, in the middle of a flow of thought of Paul. We're picking up actually in the middle of, a, of an argument that we don't have time to get into the details with this morning. But essentially, Paul was contending with people who weren't sure that they believed in the resurrection and they weren't sure what they believed about the body. And so Paul's got kind of a simultaneous argument going on here about the resurrection and about the body. And essentially, he's saying something like, the death no longer holds ultimate dominion over us. And that itself is a huge human epiphany. That aliveness after death, did you catch that? The kind of aliveness that we will all experience after this thing we call death, it happens in a new body. And what Paul is wanting to help them see is that this notion that there is an aliveness after death and a new sort of body, but it is an embodied life, but a different sort of embodied life, is meant for Paul to help people have an imagination for living life now. That was really kind of Paul's point. That the kind of life that he always argues for, the kind of life in Christ that he, Paul's always trying to point out, it just can't be lived in fear the chief human fear of which is death. And so we didn't read it this morning, but Paul finishes his argument this way. The dead will be raised, changed, imperishable. So, O death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? And then the, the final sort of like, we might think of sort of application in a sermon, the, the final thought of Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 is this. Therefore, knowing that there is an aliveness after death, there is resurrection. And knowing that this is gonna be an embodied sort of life, though a different sort of body, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Knowing what you know, that Jesus has conquered the chief human fear of death, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so for Paul, this epiphany, about the meaning of death and the meaning of the human body in death is meant to fund this imagination for giving oneself fully to God. And then lastly, and here where we'll spend a little more time, is in our passage in Luke 6, if you want to look at it. It's known as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, you know, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus goes up to a mountain and teaches. Here he comes actually down from a mountain and Luke's telling of it. And there's this Sermon on the Plain. Tom Wright has written about this Sermon on the Plain, that the kingdom that Jesus embodied and taught was itself an epiphany. It was a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity, which leads his followers then to give up our will to power and our will to control in order to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, 
to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who abuse us. And like you, when I read this, I have a lot of reactions. Um, First, how far I can seem from this. But secondly, it's hard to even imagine a world in which there is no violent revenge, no divisions of class or caste, or where the things that one owns is available to be used for the care of one's neighbor. And thinking along these 10 tracks, sorry, these twin tracks this weekend, thinking about this, this message, it, it hit me that this is one of those moments where I want to say to you gently, kindly, I'm not upset at anybody, that all religions are actually not alike. That's a really lazy, disrespectful, intellectually dishonest thing to say. I know it's often said out of a kind of kindness or trying to deal with plurality and relativism and all that. I get the underlying motive. It's just not actually an appropriate thing to say. No self-respective Zoroastrianism person thinks they're the same as everybody else. And no self-respecting Muslim think it's the same of everything else. And I just want to say to you, you could go do a quick little course on comparative religion or pick up a little book on comparative religion, and you will find that it is only the kingdom of God that Jesus lived and taught. It's the only religion that even dares to envision such a generous, gracious, generative life. A life born from the knowledge that God loves us. Again, in Benner's little book, he says that our being is grounded in God's love. That the generative love of God is our origin. And that the embracing love of God sustains our existence. And the the inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. That love is our identity and calling. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. So when I think about this and I think about the moments in my life where I am very far sincerely desiring to do good to someone who's desiring to harm me, I think it just, again, it just demands a little moment of intellectual honesty. What's happening there? And I think a part of what's happening, the big pivot that many of us need to make is to pivot from having faith in Jesus to having the sort of faith that he had. Are you feeling me here? A very big difference to say, for instance, I believe in Eric Clapton. It would be a very different thing to embody what he can embody with a guitar in his hand. And so there's this shift that has to happen from it's not just merely believing in Jesus, even if you believe accurately about his person, if you have a really solid Christology even accurately believing about the meaning of his death, and you have a really solid soteriology. That's a very different thing than having the sort of faith that Jesus himself had in his father and in his father's love. And that faith is what funds not just his teaching, but the way he embodied the kingdom. I mean, Jesus knew that his father loved him, and that animated the kind of faith he had 
when he wept over the city that rejected him. You could just go on a retreat with that. He wept over the city that rejected him. He didn't take out billboards with a giant middle finger on it. He didn't tweet out disgusting things. He wept over the city that rejected him. And when his tormentors slugged him on the cheek and mockingly ripped off his clothes, he went right on loving those enemies, willing their good, even to the point of dying for them. And it's from his experiential faith in his father that allowed Jesus to be the true, full, faithful fulfillment, the faithful embodiment of what confidence in God looks like. You only don't turn the other cheek if you have confidence in God. If you don't have confidence in God and you feel like you have to secure yourself, well, then you're not likely to turn the other cheek. You're likely to strike back. And I think when we think about this, we tend to think that some sort of special religious or moral or ethical strength undergirds the ability to live into these startling teachings of Jesus. And I wanna suggest to you, I don't think that's the case. I don't think anybody is just temperamentally such that they, you know, love their enemies. I don't think so. I think what's happening here is that the real ability to live into these sorts of teachings is to have the same sort of confidence in Jesus that Jesus had in his father. I don't think it's about moral ability. I don't think it's about ethical clearness. Although I would love to be as ethically clear as I can, at the end of the day, I don't think that funds the kind of capability to bless those who are cursing you. I think it's rooted in a really deep, deep, deep confidence that my life is hidden with God in Christ, as Paul put it. And I think such confidence comes less from moral effort, again, based on sort of ethical conceptions, and more from what I want to say are matters of fact, upon which then one can come to peacefully rely. So again, when I think of Jesus' life, I picture him coming up out of the waters of baptism and hearing the Father say, this is my son whom I love. Now just think about the confidence that that engenders. Or at 12, when he's lost in the temple precincts, and mom asks him, what are you doing? He says, can't you see I had to be about my father's business. That's what grounded Jesus, not ethical genius. Though he is an ethical genius. That's not what grounded him. What grounded him was, I'm in my father's business. We're thinking of him just having experienced the life of the eternal trinity. Well, I don't know, I, I, I probably can speak for you, but I won't. I'll speak for myself. I, this is a process. And it's a process that sometimes involves painful realizations. I heard Dallas Willard tell this story many times personally, and I think it's published in his book, um, The Great Omission. Willard writes, some time ago I came to realize that I did not love the people next door. They were by any standards dangerous and unpleasant people. Ex-bikers who made their living selling drugs. They'd never tried to harm my family, but the constant traffic of people buying drugs, a number of whom sat in the yard while shooting up, 
began to wear down my patience. As I brooded over them one day, indulging my irritation, the Lord helped me to see that I really had no love for them at all and that I would be secretly happy if they died so that I could just be rid of them. I realized, Alice wrote, how little I truly loved for nearly all the people I dealt with throughout the day, even when on religious business. I had to admit that I had never earnestly sought to be possessed by God's kind of love, to become more like Jesus. And that's when the seeking began. This is when Dallas began to learn that living under the governance of the heavens frees and empowers us to love as God loves. But outside the safety and sufficiency of heaven's rule, we're too frightened and angry to really love each other, even ourselves. And then I don't think I'll ever forget these next seven words. I think they've sat in my mind and heart for decades now. And so we arrange our dreary substitutes. I don't know why those words stood out to me so much. I could just feel that they were real. I could feel the dreary substitutes in myself. I could see, I could feel the dreary substitutes of the, of the addictions all around us in the anger and the violent revenge. One only has to spend about three minutes on Twitter to find out that we are arranging our dreary substitutes. There's a note on the passage in Luke 6 in the Spiritual Formation Bible that says, we live in a world that presently thrives on aggression and retaliation. Returning blow for blow, curse for curse, grudge for grudge, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. Just looking for a fight. Brooding about how to get even. Planning acts of vengeance. Perpetrating the cycle of violence. And again, you don't have to be a sociologist for religion to know that many of the people doing thing, these things would identify as Christians and would have what they sincerely think is rationale for such behavior. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like we often can't imagine even what it would be like to have our heart go out in generous blessing to someone who's insulted or humiliated us or to work without the thought of gain for the well-being of someone who openly despises us, or to enthusiastically pull for the success of someone who's competing with us for favor or position or financial gain. And I get how this is uh, troubling, but we're left then to face this question. At the end of Luke 40, at the end of Luke 6, we didn't read this, Luke 646. After all this teaching, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Now, that's not a rhetorical question meant to evoke religious or moral guilt. That's never Jesus's way. It's a penetrating, searching question to be sure, but it's one that's actually meant to just have a practical outcome in mind because there really are real answers to that question. Often it includes something like this. Keeping it real, Jesus? I think I don't do what you say because I don't have enough confidence in your worldview. Frankly, somewhere deep in me, it seems nutty. Can't survive in business that way. 
can't get promoted at work that way. People just trample over you. You can't survive on social media that way. I mean, come on. So often just keep, again, keeping it real, it's sometimes the, the practical reason that we call him Lord and don't do what he says is that we actually don't see the world the way he sees it. We don't see reality the way he sees it. We don't see a God-bathed reality. We see a human-bathed reality and us as humans in it sort of fighting and slugging our way through it. Not really having confidence in the goodness and rightness and, and the actual workability of his teachings. So what if this morning in this quiet moment you could set aside any guilt or shame that immediately rushes into your mind when you hear that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? And what if this morning you just wondered um, surrounded by the grace of God, surrounded by the love of God, let that grace and love this morning just let you wonder, why do I call him Lord and not do the things that he says? What actually is it? Let's just sit with that for a minute.